All right, good morning, everyone. Glad to have you with us. Get my monitor set up here. What these are is just I can hear myself singing, so. Plus it shows me if, if it's recording. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let me tell you the one I love, he's here inside me, he came from up above, he is my best friend, I fell in love with him, he is my hero, he's wiped away my sin, up on a cross, he suffered, died to set me free, no one else has ever done so much for me. Christ, he's my hero and he's my best friend, yeah. Him he went me right down to the very end. He's my hero and he's my best friend. He knows my future. Knows my past, the one and only, the very first and last. His words are spirit, and his words are life. His word is power, it cuts me like a knife. I am a slave to the one who purchased me. My Lord, my God, you're deeper than the bluest Jesus Christ, he's my hero and he's my best friend. He'll be with me right down to the very end. He's my hero and he's my best friend. Oh, oh it's your hero. You want a friend, someone to love you, stick with you to the end. Believe in him, in all those tears will be wiped away. Believe in him, and listen to him every day. Jesus Christ, he's my hero, and he's my best friend, yeah. down to the very end. He's my hero and he's my best friend. He's my hero and he's my best friend. He's my hero and he's my best friend. Good morning again, and could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? Let me hang up this guitar, I'll be right back with you.
Alright, I'm back and uh, good morning again to all of you. And uh, if you haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And we're continuing our study of Ephesians and particular Ephesians chapter 2 and even more specifically Ephesians chapter 2 verse 15. This will be our second of five hours in Ephesians 2.15. The reason why that is because of the content. As I pointed out in our last class, that's what's going to determine how long I stay in a verse. So uh, so you find this especially in Paul's writings and and the epistles. And with with a narrative, like we've done Genesis in the past, we don't have to, we we can take big swaths of scripture, maybe even chapters sometimes, uh, because uh, you get, there's a a message right in those particular uh, paragraphs or or, your, you know, uh, whole chapters and stuff. So we've done that with like with Exodus. We did a whole chapter, one class when we did Exodus. So it depends on what uh, uh, what what I need to say, uh, what what's in the verse, how communicated. How there's a lot of things to explain in this passage, especially Ephesians, and so I take my time going through it. So the content again determines how long I stay in it. So this will be our hundred thirteenth hour in this uh, in this particular. Uh, see, I'm just looking at my. Uh, my YouTube broadcast, make sure everything's okay here. Oh, you know, it's so funny how they, they change the, the um, YouTube when they do the studio, YouTube studio. They have, uh, they have this warning thing, which is kind of distracting because really there's nothing wrong with the stream that I'm doing, but uh, they, they recommend a certain bit rate and stuff. So, of course, they want to, then I have to go to my internet company and get more uh, whatever than I need to. But <laughs> anyways, doesn't matter. So I can see you're, it's running live and it's 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 okay. So uh, so we're going to uh, um, continue our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. So without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves and determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overact of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting you, please do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another another day to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the completed canon of Scripture and the gift of the Holy Spirit who makes it possible to us to understand your word and he helps us to uh, not only do that but also to apply your word so that we can have uh, that which the Spirit produces, the fruit of the Spirit. We just thank you, Father, for um, the great blessings that you've given to us uh, temporally and spiritually, the logistical grace blessings uh, that... Uh, and allow us to live on this earth and to function and to enjoy your creation. I just thank you, Father, for the spiritual blessings that we have as, a relate, as related to our so great salvation and our union identification with your Son, Jesus Christ. And I just thank you, Father, for electing us and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of your Son in eternity past. 
and also the personal work of your Son of the Cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, from regeneration to resurrection. And I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us here this morning. Uh, first of all, help me by the power of the Spirit to be sensitive to His Spirit, His guidance and direction and help me to deliver your full counsel today with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so I can minister to your people and, uh, and any unsaved that might be in the audience. I pray, Father, you would work mightily and powerfully through your people in the audience, help them learn, understand, and apply what they're being taught so that they can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. And I also pray for if there's any people in the audience that are not Christians, I thank you for them as well, and I pray that the Spirit help them to understand the gospel at some point so that they can make a decision to either accept or reject your Son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. We know that you desire all people to be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth. Father, I also pray for the technology, and I thank you for uh, the uh, streaming service by YouTube. I pray it would function properly. And I also pray, Father, there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. And so, Father, we thank you for another day of the Word of God, Bible doctrine, and I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work to both myself and the audience here uh, this, after, uh, this morning. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you should be it. If you haven't done that, gone there already, in case you're popping in uh, a little late, uh, first, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 is where I want you to begin. And we'll read uh, the, the Net Bible's translation of chapter 2, and then we'll look at my translation, and then look at verse 15 in detail, where we're going to be looking at the Hena Purpose Clause in Ephesians 2.15. And so, uh, in the we, we last, uh, uh, we started, the, we looked at the first assertion, first of three assertions that are found in Ephesians 2.15, and the second one we'll be noting today, which is in the form of a purpose clause. So to, that's why if you look at the Ephesians on, my, on the board, I have Ephesians 2.15b, and that's marking the fact that uh, we're going to be looking at the second assertion uh, in the verse. Uh, if you saw in the last class, it was 2.15a. That's because we're looking at the first assertion. Today, we're looking at the second one. So in this second assertion, uh, we'll see that Jesus Christ caused both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be created into one new humanity. And as I, I've been pointing out, this is very exciting uh, for church-age believers to understand that, uh, you know, we are part of what God the Father is trying to do in history right now during the church age, which began June of 33 AD and on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and will end with the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent. Uh, he is trying to restore human beings over the works of his hands. Remember, we've been pointing out in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Adam and Eve were created to rule over the works of God's hands. But the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, uh, in Ephesians, Hebrews chapter 2 says, uh, we don't see all things subjected to mankind. And, uh, but then he says that we do see Jesus. And Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, he became a human being and to suffer the wrath of God in our place and uh, so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever. And he lived the life of perfect obedience to the law that we couldn't live. And through his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father, uh, that's the first step in God restoring human beings as ruling over the works of his hands on planet earth. As we pointed out temporarily, the devil is the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4, 4, 1 John 5, 19, and Re uh, Revelation 12 says that uh, he deceives the entire world. And he offered up the kingdoms of the world to Jesus Christ if he would just bow down and worship him. And Jesus, of course, emphatically rejected him with the, the word of God. And so uh, he did, that wouldn't be a, a legitimate temptation. Uh, that would... That, that uh, had to be a legitimate temptation, otherwise, you know, he, he, um, 
that we know that uh, that it was a legitimate temptation, and uh, he wouldn't even take uh, bother saying what he said to Jesus unless it was something that he did have authority over. So it would have been a legitimate temptation if he didn't have that kind of authority. And so we see now during the church age, every time somebody, whoever they are, Jew, Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, doesn't matter who you are, the minute you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Father declares you justified. And then simultaneously, through the baptism of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit identifies identifies us with Jesus Christ and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. So positionally, the church age believer is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that's in a place, a place of victory over the fallen angels and Satan. And it's a place where we are going to occupy for all of eternity with the bride of Christ. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, as we'll see. And so uh, we see that church-age believers, the bride of Christ, members of the body of Christ, will rule with Jesus Christ during his millennial reign and, uh, and on into eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. So this is exciting, and this is the new humanity is composed of both Jew and Gentiles. And this is amazing in the first century. I think it's amazing even now, but it was in the first century it was even more incredible because Jews and Gentiles had nothing to do with each other. And the reason why that was, as we pointed out, was the Mosaic Law. Now, most people look at the dietary regulations as a health thing. It was more, much more than that. Uh, God, by putting health restrictions, you know, clean and unclean animals in the Old Testament, and uh, by which Jesus actually abrogated that, stopped that, in Mark 7 it says. And so we see that uh, God had these dietary regulations on the Jews for the simple reason he did not want the Jewish people, when they went into the land of Canaan, uh, and these, you know, these pagan idolaters, they were worshiping false gods, and they were engrossed in unrepentant idolatry, and of course idolatry is the brainchild of Satan and his evil spirit, fellow evil spirits. And so, and, and what they, God said, I don't want to eat them to eat certain animals because those animals that they, these pagan idolaters worshipped, uh, there were certain foods that were related to their, their, uh, their worship of these false gods. And uh, so, therefore, he prohibited the, the Israelites from eating those particular animals because it, it would lead them into uh, the worship of these other gods. So they didn't eat with gen, uh, Gentiles. In other words, so you see in Acts chapter 10, Peter had to be told in a vision three times before he could go see Cornelius, Cornelius, the Roman centurion in his home. He had to tell Peter through a vision that, you know, what God says is clean now. You don't call unclean. So in other words, the dietary regulations no longer are applicable uh, for, uh, for his people. And so those in the Old Testament, they were identity markers for the Israelites and also a, a way to prohibit them or keep them from getting into the worship of false gods. And so uh, we now see that, uh, as I said before, Mark 7, Jesus uh, pushed, uh, ended all that, and it was confirmed in Acts chapter 10. So Peter went into Cornelius' house, and he gave him the gospel, and, and then Gentiles for the first time received the baptism of the Spirit like the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost in June of 38, 3 AD. So now the hostility but that was between the Jews and Gentiles because they didn't interact with each other because of the, the law was hindering that. And also the law was also hindering the relationship between Jew and Gentile because the Jews used it as, a, it, as something that showed that they had more merit than the Gentiles with God, which was not true. And so uh, Jesus came and tried to, was dealing with that with his disciples and the Jewish people at that time. And when he went to the Samaritan woman, he was sending a message to them, teaching them something. 
you know, Samaritan woman. They weren't, they weren't, uh, there was a, a racial uh, problem between the Samaritans and the Jews. So Jesus went into a, and talked to a woman and he was a rabbi, which was a no-no in both instances. And he gave her the gospel and she got saved and the whole city did. Uh, so he was teaching his disciples something about that, about racial bigotry. So one of the great things about this doctrine that Jesus Christ caused both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be created into one new humanity is that it, it's, it has a great significance for racial problems in our country and around the world. So uh, you know, there's racial problems in every, not just in America, but everywhere. Uh, in Pakistan, in India, in Africa, Europe, there's, there's everywhere. There's problems everywhere with racial bigotry and problems one race won't deal with the other, and not just in America. And so what's the great thing is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let's say Jesus Christ, so let's say um, you're African American and you believe in Jesus Christ, okay? And and I'm obviously white and uh, and I believe in Jesus Christ. So now we are brothers in Christ. So, and I've always said this, and I, when I did the series on Philemon, you know, they fought a war, unlike England, who brought in, got, got rid of slavery without a war. But the Civil War... Uh, which is, uh, you know, it, we had a war and a lot of bloodshed over this issue of slavery. And I know a lot of people like say it's states' rights and everything. And I used to believe that too. But uh, a friend of mine made it clear and showed me we're in the, if you look at the historically the documents, you know, the South, the South said that, you know, hey, we will not secede from the Union if you don't, uh, you know, ban um, slavery. And the North said no, and then they went to war. So don't tell me slavery had nothing to do with it. It did. And, it, and the reason why it did is because the South, the South, the economy was driven by slaves. <laughs> and that's no different than the Roman Empire, who had over 60 million slaves, and their economy was driven by slave labor too, due to their wars that the, the captives they received from the, like Greece or whatnot. So you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of misinformation out there about this. So when I say all this though, Okay, so we could have avoided the Civil War and all that bloodshed if the pastors in America had taught this. It's in the South and in the North. Because that's where it all really, I believe all this stuff with war, it all started there. And the, and the pastors didn't stand up to the slave owners in the South and tell them the truth. Instead they play, you know, because they, they, they was all, I'm sure it was all about money, it always is. And so you gotta have, you gotta teach this. And so this would, this would have, you know, this is what they needed to teach in the 1960s and the 70s when I was growing up, when we had uh, tremendous problems. And this can solve, the gospel in other words, solves everything. It changes everything as Tim Keller used to say. It does. And so I believe in the gospel. I, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know, I'm told not to be ashamed of the gospel. I, it's the power of God for salvation. It's the only thing that can he, to, to alleviate, truly alleviate, the racial divide in America. That's not even close to what it used to be when I was a kid, all due respect. I mean, we had uh, President Obama was elected to two terms uh, comfortably, and it was white voters that got him in because that's the majority of people who are white in this country still. And so he would never get elected if it wasn't the, in the whites in America like myself that were people who were voting for him. So he never would have got, I mean, so that tells you this, things have changed, okay, which is for the better. And uh, whether you like President Obama or not, I'm just saying this is the, this is the, this is the facts, all right? So uh, when I was growing up, it was much, it was, you talk about systemic racism, it, it was seriously that when I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s, and, and I saw it firsthand, okay? And uh, so 
this is a great thing of implication of this doctrine that we, this teaching in Ephesians chapter two verses eleven through twenty-two, the new humanity and how uh, it, uh, it 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 can uh, de uh, deliver us from racial problems in our country, especially in the church. There should never be any kind of racial bigotry within the church itself. So uh, this doctrine would rebuke that if there was any, and wherever in the country or, or in this world or wherever. So let's look at Ephesians chapter two verse one with that introduction out of the way. Again, I'm going to read from the Net Bible, chapter two, and then look at verse, and then read my translation of verse chapter two, and then look at verse fifteen and the second assertion, which is in a form of the human purpose clause. We'll look at that for the rest of the class. So uh, I do this because read both the chapter because I want to study the passage in its particular context, both considering the immediate preceding context and what follows it. So Ephesians chapter two, verse one says, and although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives and the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who has destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you, who are far off, and peace to those who are near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, let's look at my translation of this same chapter. And uh, just again, for those who might be unfamiliar, my translation is more interpretive. It's more explanatory, more wordy, you would probably say. And it's because I'm your interpreter. People on translation committees wouldn't do what I'm doing, and uh, they shouldn't. So uh, I'm just saying that I can bring, that there's some things that they, 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 they could do. Uh, what I'm doing also is I'm bringing out the, the implications or the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the glosses of the like the tenses like the present tense or the aorist tense or whatever I'm trying a future tense I'm trying to bring those things out too in my translation so 
And also I'll bring out the figures of metonymy, especially in, here in Ephesians, you see the prepositional phrase in Christ Jesus or in Christ or in him or in himself. A lot of times that is in this in the first two chapters of Ephesians. Uh, you see that the figure of metonymy is put for that, meaning the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. And because those the justification and the baptism of the Spirit and our union identification with Christ is the reason why, and many times in this epistle, the means as to why we have all these blessings and we have the new humanity, okay? And Jew and Gentile are uh, on equal terms with each other in the church age, in the church. So, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, now correspondingly, again, this is my translation, now correspondingly, even though uh, each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience. Verse 3, among whom each and every one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh, the sin nature. Then he says, consequently, each and every one of us, and that's in the Christian community, both Jew and Gentile, caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest of humanity correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So we see in verse uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 2 that the believer, prior to his justification, regeneration, uh, getting born again, in other words, uh, they were enslaved to sin and Satan in his cosmic system, like the rest of humanity. Uh, the, re the enslavement to sin and Satan, uh, Satan in his cosmic system is noted in verse 2. Verse 3, we have the, the sin nature. And so we see that in, these, in, these, in the verse 3, we, talk, we even see with, with the phrase natural condition from physical birth, that's talking about the imputation of Adam's sin at physical birth. So we're, we're sinners by nature and practice. And so that's the reason why Paul brings this out in the first three verses is because he's trying to accentuate the great love and mercy of God and the grace of God because both his mercy and his grace flow from his, the function of the attribute of his love, attribute of love. So he's accentuating the grace of God in relation to the Gentile Christian community uh, and Jewish Christian, uh, Christian community. And then he does it again in verses 11 through 22 and, and specifically in relation to the Gentile Christian community. And uh, because they were not in a covenant relationship with God like the Jewish Jews were and they didn't have the privileges that the Jews had, like the scriptures and being the, having the four unconditional covenants to Israel and the temple worship, tabernacle worship. They didn't, and then the, the Messiah would be a Jew. They didn't have that, the Gentiles. So, Paul's accentuating the love and the grace and mercy of God by doing these things. He's setting us up. So that it says in verse 4, But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love, with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us, as a corporate unit, were spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you, as a corporate unit, as saved because of grace. Then he says in verse 6, specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him, our identification with Christ and his resurrection. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated 
in the heavenlies, heavenlies, that's our identification with Christ and his session at the right hand of the Father. Why do he do this? Because of our faith in and union identification with Christ. So we see that in the Greek text of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, uh, you can see en Christo Yesu, that's the Nestle Alon 28th edition text. Now, what I'm doing there is I'm putting the figure of metonymy, I'm interpreting as having the figure of metonymy. And every, a, lot of, a lot of scholars already know this, and Bible interpreters, he's using shorthand, in other words. So in Christ Jesus, meaning the person of Christ, it's easier to say that than what I just said, because of your faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. But that's what the reader and Paul was be thinking about. Because it was because of our faith in Jesus at justification, and simultaneously the baptism of the Spirit at our justification, where we identify with Christ that his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. That was the reason why we were raised and seated with Christ. Okay? So now, and so the preposition there end is in a causal, is a causal marker, and I find that to be the case almost every single time in the first two chapters when it has Jesus Christ as its object. So then it says in verse 7, he did this, the Father did this, why? So that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, like the millennial reign and the new heavens and the new earth, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each and every one of us. Why? Again, because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. Verse 8, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us in the Christian community, both Jew and Gentile, have been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. And these God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. So in this verse, the prepositional phrase, en Christo Yesu, is used, uh, the preposition there, and is a marker of means this time. The context determines whether it's going to be causal or means or whatever it could be, whatever the semantic range of this word, and there's a great one, uh, semantic range with this word, and the preposition. So then we have verse 11. It says, therefore, it says, based upon what I just said in the first 10 verses, therefore, each and every one, this is, this is an inference from the first 10 verses, in other words, therefore, each and every one of you, Gentiles, as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by those who received the designation circumcision, the Jews, with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each one of you Gentiles used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the condition, uh, from the uh, citizenship of uh, Israel. Specifically, he says, uh, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, the Messianic promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing, resurrection body, rewards for faithful service. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. So again, he's pointing this time, like he similarly, similarly to what he did in the first three verses of chapter two, here in verses 12, uh, we see, in verse 12, we see that Paul's emphasizing how bad a situation the Gentiles were. And at least the Jews, unregenerate Jew, uh, they came into life with revelation from God in their home. You know, with the tabernacle worship, 
the promises. They had the scriptures. Uh, the Gentiles didn't have any of this. So the, the, the Jews had all these privileges that Paul enumerates in Romans 9, 4, and 5, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, and Paul's talking about them here in Ephesians 2, 12, all these blessings that the Jews had that the Gentiles never had. So he does this again to accentuate the grace of God, this time in verses 11 through 22, in relation to the Gentile Christians. Okay? So now we have a contrast in verse 13, much like we saw in verse 4. However, because of your faith, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you as a corporate unit who formerly were far away have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself, Jesus Christ, personifies our peace, namely by causing both groups, Jew and Gentile, to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused the hostility between the two and the two with God. And then he, we know it's the Mosaic Law because what he says in the first assertion in verse 15, which we noted in detail in our last class. In other words, so he's, and when he says in other words, he's saying, I'm explaining to you what I mean by that uh, previous statement. And at the end of verse 14, in other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws, that's the Mosaic Law, in order that he might cause the two, Jew and Gentile, to be created into one new humanity. And the means by which he did this, by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, he caused peace to be established between the two races and the two races with God. Verse 16, in other words, that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he, Jesus Christ, put to death the hostility between the two and the two races with God by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, verse 17, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who were far off, likewise those who were near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, he says, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with him. The whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you, without exception, are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So as we pointed out in our last class, like Ephesians 2.14, Ephesians 2.15 contains three assertions. Now the first assertion we find in the Greek text of Ephesians 2.15 is ente, sarki, autu, ton, nomon, tone, and tolon, en, dokimasen, Kategesas, which I translate in other words, by nullifying by means of the of his human nature the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws. So I would uh, the Net Bible they translate it when he nullified in his flesh 
uh, the law of commandments and decrees. The second assertion is a Hina purpose clause. We'll be noting that for the rest of the class. Hina tus duo kitise en altu eis Hina kanon anthropon, which I translate in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. The Net Bible renders this. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two. And the third and final assertion, thus making peace, uh, we see in the Greek text is poion erenein, which I translate, thus he caused peace to be established. And that's between the two races with each other and the two races with God. So as we pointed out in our last class on Thursday, the first of these three assertions is in the form of a participial clause, which is actually presenting the specific means by which Christ, Jesus Christ personifies the peace that now exists between Jewish and Gentile Christian communities and God and these two groups amongst themselves. It states, as we pointed out on Thursday, that Jesus Christ personifies this peace by nullifying or by means of nullifying, by means of his human nature. The law, the Mosaic law, composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws. Now, the second assertion, which we're going to look at for the rest of the class, and we noted in passing uh, a few moments ago in, on Thursday, presents the purpose of Jesus Christ doing this. And it states that he did so in order that he might cause these two, two, these two groups who were diametrically opposed to each other prior to justification to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in Jesus Christ at justification and union and identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit, which also, again, took place at justification. And the third and final assertion is in the form of a participial clause as well, which presents the result of Jesus Christ causing these two groups to be created into one humanity by means of faith in himself and union and identification with him. It states that he caused peace to exist between the two and God and peace between these two groups in relation to each other. So, as we noted, the second assertion, which we're going to look at for the rest of the class, is a purpose clause. And it presents, again, the purpose of Jesus Christ nullifying the law, composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws by means of his human nature. Now, he did this, it states that he did so in order that he might cause both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be created into one new humanity. And this, again, was by means of faith in himself for justification and, simultaneously, union and identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit, at our justification. So the word duo there, translated to in your Bibles, refers, of course, to the con in context to the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. Now, the articular accusative, masculine plural cardinal number duo, functions as an accusative direct object of the verb katizo, which means, which speaks of creation, bringing something into existence which, existence which had not existed before the act. And which is interesting. So this word katizo, Create, at your Bible's a net Bible. It says, it talks about, uh, he did this to create in himself one new man out of the two. Okay? Create. It means to create something that didn't exist before, out of nothing. Okay? God created the time, matter, space, continuum by just speaking it into existence. Okay? This tells you. And when did he do this? For the, he's talking in the context of the church. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. You know, some people out there saying he does, it, no, there's, there's no scriptural basis for that at all. It's all eisegesis. It's not exegesis because Jesus in Matthew 16, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. It will. It was future yet when Jesus said, said that. 
And so this passage is telling us that we never saw a Jew and Gentile made, created into one new humanity. Christ hadn't come yet. In the Old Testament, we didn't see it because Christ hadn't come yet to do this. So he created himself one new man at, 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 the, cro at the cross. He, uh, that was the basis for the, for the church being built. All right, through the baptism of the Spirit at, on the day of Pentecost, and go, that goes all the way to the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which ends the church age. So the, the church was in existence prior to the, 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 uh, the church age. Okay, so we see here again that the referent of the, the verb katizo, create, is of course the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's pretty obvious. I'll give you the full screen here. And the referent of the dative third-person third masculine singular form of the intensive personal pronoun autos, which is translated himself, is again the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's emphasizing identity. And it's the demonstrative force intensify. Now, as I've been pointing out throughout the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul's using shorthand when he uses the prepositional phrase and Christo, and Christo Yesu, or um, uh, in himself out and auto. When he does that, he's not all the time, pretty much almost all the time, he's, he's using it related to the believer's faith and justification and union identification with him. Okay? So this word here also contains the figure of autonomy, which means that Jesus Christ is put for faith in him at justification, as well as union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. So if you, if you look at your, your net Bible, Okay, it says, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commands and decrees, he did this to create in himself one no man out of the two, thus making peace. When he says in himself, there's a more specific semantic, you know, they translate the word and in, okay? That's one way to use it. But in context, it could be used in a causal sense or by, to express means. And there's other, other, other uh, it has a wide semantic domain. So, semantic range. So, you could translate the most specific one I can see is you know he as I as I translated in my translation this prepositional phrase let me get you my translation oops wrong. okay here we go go back to my translation of verse fifteen um, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new man by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself and that was through the bats in the spirit at justification so it does mean in himself, but you can be more specific. In, in this context, it would be means rather than cause. He, by means of faith in himself at justification and by means of unit identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit is how he created the two races into one new humanity. So again, the theology of Paul supports my interpretation of the prepositional phrase that the figure of autonomy is being used there. And because it was by means of faith in Jesus at justification and simultaneously the baptism of the Spirit, which identified both Jewish and Gentile believers with Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father, that's the means by how, and also, and also in, in several different other contexts, the reason, you know, why, in this context, why we are one new humanity, both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Okay, so it was through that that I just mentioned. You know, so justification and, and, and the baptism of the Spirit. So we see that uh, this uh, word, uh, which is autos himself, which we're talking about in context, is again the object of the preposition and, which functions this time in this context in verse 15 in the, in the Hena Purpose Clause as a marker of means, which indicates the means by which Jesus Christ caused both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be created into one new humanity. So therefore, 
This prepositional phrase, anato, it indicates that Jesus Christ caused both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be created into one new humanity by means of their faith in Him at justification, as well as their union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Now, the active voice of the verb katizo, uh, create, is significant. It's a causative active, which is quite interesting, which brings into view the work of the Spirit and uh, justification and the baptism of the Spirit. The active voice of this verb, katizo, remember Jesus is the subject of that verb, it is significant. It's a causative active because it indicates that Jesus Christ is the ultimate cause of Jewish and Gentile Christians being created into one new humanity, but is not directly involved in this creation. And so what, what do we might, what, how do we know what the, uh, who is directly involved in this new creation? Because he's the source of it, but is he, he's not, who, how did, how did he, uh, what was the, who's, what member of the Trinity was directly involved, okay? So a comparison of scripture with scripture indicates that the Lord Jesus Christ caused both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be created into the state of being one new humanity as a result of the Father declaring them justified through faith in himself. So the Father, the first step is justification. Because without justification through faith in Christ, there's no baptism of the Spirit, okay? It doesn't take place. So the Father is the was directly involved in this new creation because he is the one who declared the Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ as justified. And simultaneously, simultaneously, at their justification, both Jewish and Gentile Christians were placed into union with Jesus Christ and identified with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father through the baptism of the Spirit. So this union identification with Christ, you want to know about it in detail, go study our series on sanctification. You can look at it at Winston Bible Ministries, the written articles there. Uh, you, uh, you can also uh, go to DBC and I taught on sanctification not that long ago. So it's very, 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 very important, okay? So this is what that prepositional phrase is alluding to. Yeah, it's talking about Jesus Christ, but in what sense? Faith in Him at justification and the baptism of the Spirit where we identify with Christ as crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session. You know, there's many passages, several, like Romans 6, big passage on our identification with Christ and His death and resurrection. Uh, the, our identification with Christ and His resurrection is also spoken about in Ephesians 2, in session, Ephesians 2, 6, right? And then what about Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4? Who study, we studied that in detail. Well, we're identified with Christ in His death and resurrection, the ancestral, the right hand of the Father. So uh, we see that uh, this is big in Paul's theology. And what he was trying to do with this, by this metaphor, is he's trying to say that we're under the headship of the last Adam. Okay, now that we trusted in Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who's the head of the new humanity that's going to rule over the works of God's hands. That's why he uses this, you know, the body of Christ metaphor and the vine and the branches metaphor that the Lord uses to describe his relationship to the church and, you know, the, the building building, the building metaphor, the temple metaphor that's in chapter two that we see that we'll look at in detail. He's trying to, and the, the bride and the bridegroom, we're the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter five. All that's trying to tell us how inextricably tied to Jesus Christ we are. Now, in other words, when he talks about union identification with Christ, specifically identification with Christ and those events in Jesus' life that I mentioned to you. He's basically saying, when you, when Christ was crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father, God considers the Jewish and Gentile church-age believers have that taking place as well when Jesus had that, those events take place in his life. God considers us to be, he looks at us just like that, crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. 
not according to our sins and transgressions. That's called the grace of God. We don't earn it, deserve it. And God's grace policy towards sinners, where he bestows upon sinners unmerited blessings based upon their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that flows from the function of his attribute of love. So now, the when we have the word one, it says in uh, Ephesians 2.15 in the Net Bible, in the purpose clause, he did this to create in himself one new me and out of two. The word one there is the adjective haste. And again, it refers to both Jewish and Gentile Christian communities constituting a single human entity. The word for humanity is anthropos. It's used with a reference to the church, the body of Christ, composed of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, and it speaks of them as a corporate human entity. The word for new, kainos, it's, uh, this adjective describes this humanity, composed of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, as new in the sense of this humanity being original and of a kind not seen before in creation and speaks of that which is recent in contrast to something that is old. So here it's referring to the new humanity composed of both Jewish and Gentile Christians as a, resu uh, as a result of the creative activity of Jesus Christ. And this word is modifying the word anthropos, humanity, and it's describing the attribute, it's ascribing the attribute of being new to this new this to this humanity that's composed of both Jewish and Gentile church age believers, which is union with the last, which is in union with the last Adam, Jesus Christ, as I pointed out to you. And that stands in stark contrast with fallen humanity, which is in union with the first Adam. So this word humanity, anthropos, or man, as the net Bible translates this word, man, the new man, that's, that's what it means, but it's actually, I don't like the new man, it's actually new humanity because the word doesn't talk about uh, gender in any way. It's, 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 it's a much more broader uh, use. So this word anthropos, man, or humanity as I translate it, is also the object of the preposition ace, which marks Jewish and Gentile Christians going from the state of being hostile toward each other and God to existing in the state of being one new humanity. So this preposition is like a marker of a change of state. It's extremely important to understand, people, that, that Paul is not teaching that there's no Jewish section of the church, or he's not teaching that the racial distinctions between the Jewish and Gentile races no longer exist. In other words, in this passage, he's, uh, the racial identity of both races is not abolished or done away when Paul asserts that Jesus Christ created both Jewish and Gentile Christians into one new humanity. Let me tell you, I mentioned this in previous classes, and in the past, I think I did the last class. I knew this guy, he was a Gentile, he was a, he was a Christian, and uh, he was a very nice man, but uh, he thought he had to live like a Jew. And he, he, dressed, he dressed like a rabbi, a Orthodox Jew, carried around a Hebrew Bible all the time. And so he thought, he misinterpreted the scriptures, and, you know, I, I pray for him all the time. It's like, but, uh, you know, he, and I talked to him about it, but, uh, you know, he, you know, obviously, hopefully I planted a few seeds. I don't think I convinced him. The Holy Spirit's going to have to do that. But I was like, you know, uh, I forget what I, I can't remember the conversation. But, you know, he's, you know, walking around town. He looks like he has the big, long beard. He looks like, a, you know, trying to arrest a rabbi. And, you know, and with, he's got his Hebrew Bible with him. He had and stuff. So he was like, so you have to, you think you have to become a, a Jew, because the reason why I thought this is because we're in union with Christ. So therefore, Jesus is a Jew, so I have to be a Jew. Now, all you have to do is look at Acts chapter 15. This was an issue for the Gentile and the church early on. The first church council in Acts 15 reveals that Paul was being attacked by 
we call Judaizers, Jewish Christians who were trying to put Gentile Christians under the law. And they, meaning they had to live like the Jews is what they were saying, the Judaizers. Jewish Christians trying to get Gentile Christians to live under the law. In other words, to, to live like a Jew because the Jews were under the law, right? They were given the law. And they, the, the early church council led by Peter, James, and John said no. They agreed with Paul. So right there, it tells you in Acts 15 that the Gentile believer in the church age doesn't have to act or dress like a Jew. <laughs> the racial, so this is the thing that people don't get. God loves diversity, but he also has unity. Through the baptism of the Spirit, he has diversity. He likes different, that's why we have multiple races and ethnic and language, multiple races, because why? Because he likes it. I mean, look at creation. I mean, we got all kinds of fruit, all kinds of trees, all kinds of animals. Kind of, I mean, and we have all kinds of types of human beings, okay, with different different colors and whatnot. Okay, God likes that. He likes he likes he likes diversity. I mean, he, and yet he has unity. So he has isn't the Trinity three persons, one divine essence. Okay, there's distinction and in, in the, there's three persons in the, in the in the being of God. You know, and the being of Bill is only, and you is only one person. But in the being of God, which transcends, the, it's, God transcends his creatures, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we, we you know, the church is a beautiful thing, never seen before. The day of, uh, never seen before the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD. So what it does mean, Paul's trying to tell us, and again, back to this point before I move to what I'm going to ask you or tell you. It's extremely important that you and I as the reader, when we read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that we understand that Paul's not teaching that there's no Jewish section of the church or that racial distinctions between the two races no longer exist. In other words, the racial identity of both races is not abolished or done away with when Paul asserts that Jesus Christ created both Jewish and Gentile Christians communities into one new humanity. What it does mean is that Jews remain Jews and Gentiles remain Gentiles with all the distinctions and differences. And there is unity with distinctions. The reason for this is that both Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and Romans 11 teach that the Gentile Christian is united to the Jewish Christian. And we're going to see that in detail on Tuesday. Next Tuesday, I'm going to talk about these two passages in relation to each other. The Gentile, as we'll see, the Gentile Christian experiences the blessings of the New Covenant with the gift of the Spirit and forgiveness because they've been united to the Jewish Christian who've received the New Covenant promises through the baptism of the Spirit at their justification. We'll talk about this when we get to it. Paul asserts, on Tuesday we'll do this, Paul asserts in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, that the covenants, which would include the New Covenant, were given to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. This is clear from the teaching of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jesus taught in John 4, 22, that salvation is of the Jews. So therefore, the Gentile Christian experiences the blessings of the new covenant, which was given to Israel, this covenant, and he experiences these blessings of the new covenant, like the gift of the Spirit, forgiveness of sins, as a result of the Holy Spirit, uniting them with Jewish Christians at the moment of their justification through the baptism of the Spirit. And this interpretation that Paul in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and Romans chapter 11 is not teaching that there's no Jewish section of the church or that racial distinctions between the two races no longer exist or that the racial identity of both races is abolished or done away is supported within the text of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3, verse 3 to Ephesians 2, 10. And we'll see that in detail next Thursday. Now, in Ephesians 2, 15, as we'll see, 
it is, uh, that, this is not the first time that Paul speaks of the new humanity composed of both Jewish and Gentile Christians because he alluded to it, if you recall, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, a passage we studied in great detail. Also, uh, in fact, look at Ephesians 2, 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared for them, so we may do them. Notice this, created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And also, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul speaks of this new creation. My translation of verses 9 through 11 of Colossians chapter 3, we'll close with this. Each and every one of you continue to make it your habit of not lying to one another because each of you have stripped off the old man with its practices. Likewise, each one of you have clothed yourselves with the new man, which is desiring to be replenished for the purpose of an experiential knowledge in conformity with the image produced by the one who created him in the sphere of which absolutely no distinctions are existing between Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free person, but rather Christ is everything as well as in each person. So notice how he draws, because we're uh, the Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, Jew and, you know, all the different, you know, uh, social and uh, uh, social economic status or whatever, um, gender, whatever it is, there's no distinctions in the church age. So that means he draws the, uh, um, he brings that in in talking about how we conduct our lives with each other. Don't lie to one another. Okay? And so we're, we're part of, we're members of each other. So why would you lie to one another? Why would you hurt each other by lying to each other? You don't hurt your own body. You just go take a hammer and smack your thumb on purpose. That's stupid, right? Well, why do we do that to each other in the body of Christ and lie to each other and slander each other and have church splits? That doesn't make any sense. It's, that's nonsensical, right? Because we're members of one another. We're part of the new humanity. So we need to live in a manner that's consistent with that. All right. We ran out of time. We'll have to pick this up on um, on uh, this coming Tuesday, obviously, which is what? The, the What's the Tuesday? 16th, yeah. Today is the, uh, the 13th. So the 16th on Tuesday, we'll continue our study of this passage. In fact, as I pointed out to you earlier, we're going to be looking at um, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and Romans 11, which teaches us that the Gentile Christian is united to the Jewish Christian. So this is, we're going to be looking at this in detail. Those who studied Romans with me years ago, I did over 500 hours in Romans, and that was a great chapter, Romans 11. So 9, 10, and 11, a great section of the epistle. But uh, we'll talk about Romans 11 in relation to our passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, because uh, they teach uh, how the Gentile Christian, how the Gentile Christian is united to the Jewish Christian. Okay, so thank you for joining us. Let's pick this up next uh, Tuesday, this coming Tuesday. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's uh, let's finish off in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your Word. We just pray, Father, that this lesson would be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your Son Jesus Christ. And we just thank you and praise you for making us part of the new humanity with Jewish Christians, and we just thank you, Father, for the fact that we're members of one, uh, one another, uh, your son being our head, and uh, we're the bridegroom, he's the, bri he's the bridegroom, we're the bride, and uh, we're going to reign with him in his millennial reign, and Father, help us to live our, our lives in a manner consistent with that, and pra by practicing the command to love one another, and, uh, and not getting involved in racial bigotry, and pettiness, and slander, and church splits, and all that ga garbage. And uh, instead being uh, forgiving and patient and tolerant one another as you've been toward us uh, when you sent your son to the cross for us when we were your enemies and then raising us up and seating us with your son through the baptism of the spirit at our justification when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. 
So we pray for this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, your Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.